0: Typically, historically, have used the triangle entry uh, as it uh, uh, lines up and fits. So let's um, let's get started. Uh, the last week or so, uh, last couple of weeks, seven of us went on a trip to Italy. Um, and coming back from that trip to Italy, I have to tell you that pizza will never taste the same. Um, I may never eat pizza in the states again uh, if you guys at, invited my wife and i over and said hey we'd like to make you some pizza i would just say no uh, <laughs> one word italy that's all that i need said right there one night we were at this incredible pizzeria uh, i had approximately 12 slices there's no real way of knowing how much pizza i actually had um and then i was sick the entire night and my <laughs> my wife was like, "You're." 37. This is not okay. At some point, you have to get on. I might have on the trip tried uh, not tried steak. I might have tried horse. I don't. uh, And and I didn't order the horse. I didn't buy the horse. Don't judge me for that. I'm not going to tell you who did. It was Eric Green. Uh, And uh, and it tastes just like steak. I wouldn't have known the difference. It was uh, was wonderful. And so, uh, my favorite night of the week, though, was in this uh, city called Genoa. Uh, which in Italian is Genova, right, which my wife got really tired of me using an Italian accent, two Italians. <laughs> apparently, that was embarrassing. And so, with uh, this, uh, this house that we walked into in Genoa or Genova, uh, you walk in and this guy that greeted us was this Italian guy who had that cowboy mustache. It just goes like that. You know what I'm talking about? Uh, we walked into his house, and no joke, this is not a story, six other people can verify To the left was a Confederate flag. Um, And I thought, did I time warp in East Texas? Like, how? Like, what just... Okay, that offended some of you. Um, I love East Texas. I'm I'm pro-East Texas. I'm not anti-East Texas. I like it. I spent two years there, all right? But I thought, what happened? Are we in Macadoches? Like, how how did this work? And in this living room, 15, 20 Christians, and when we said, "Hey, tell us about the evangelical church in your city," effectively, it was hey, this is it. This was it. And that night, we sat in there. We we ate. They fed us pasta. Um, I had a second bowl of pasta, and then I was like, "I'm done eating for a month." And then they brought out the second course to the meal, and it's like, "Well, admittedly, it can't just be rude. I have to eat." Again. And it was it was a long night. But we sat there and we ate and we prayed and we sang in Italian and then we sang in English and then we got in our cars uh, and we drove with them to the heart of the city and our women, who I was so proud of, our women got out with their women and ministered to prostitutes on the streets, many of whom had been trafficked from East uh, Eastern European countries. And it was a beautiful, beautiful night, and we were we were there. Uh, in Italy because we, we have this partnership with Acts 29 Italy. If you don't know, we're part of a network called Acts 29 and we've uh, partnered with H9 Italy and, uh, and, and that is in no way to say that we don't have a heart for the nations beyond Italy. Uh, yesterday one of my wife and I's closest friends in Dallas, who we love deeply, got on a, on a plane with a one-way ticket to the Middle East. We have a heart for the nations. The nations. But the Lord has opened up a chance for us to invest in and be invested uh, into uh, through Acts 29 Italy on a deeper level. And so that's what we've done. Um, and so as we traveled the country, as we traveled city to city to city, uh, we got to see six of, the, um, six of the seven Acts 29 churches in Italy. And as we traveled through, there became this consistent theme that we kept hearing, that in Italy, for obvious reasons, there's a, a unique brand of cultural Catholicism. Uh, and it's distinct and different uh, from the Catholicism that I was raised in and that we have here in the States. It's their own brand of it. And what we found out that throughout, uh, throughout Italy, there is, uh, when, you, when you ask um, uh, these Protestants, they tell us about the culture, tell us about the landscape, tell us about what, it, what it's like to try to engage in context with the gospel, um, they'll, they'll say there is a ton of shared language and zero shared meaning. That they have a mountain of shared language without any shared meaning. And so we'll use the same words, right? we we'll use words like church, grace, salvation. Um, but they have a distinctly different meaning to the words. And that's what's happening in our text today. Inside this triumphal entry that begins the last week of Jesus' life as he heads and turns the corner toward Jerusalem. We're going to have people, this this crowd, celebrating his arrival. And they're going to celebrate with a shared language, but without a shared meaning. And this is going to lead the crowd to a different Jesus. And so we're going to look at the text. We're going to dive into our uh, our text. It's divided into two parts, right? Part 1, verses 1 through 7. Part 2, verses 8 through 10. We're actually going to to kind of reverse engineer the text, if you will. I threw that in for my engineering friends. Uh, Reverse engineering... Uh, the text, we're going to start in part 2 and then come back to part 1. The reason is, is actually because the problem is found in part 2. And then the solution is found in part 1. And so three headings. Y'all already knew that though. Uh, three headings. The king they wanted. The king we need. And the, the humility of our king. So I'm going to read to you verses 1-7 through seven just to keep it fresh on us. The context before we hit verse 8. It says, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem... To Bethpage and to Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied, tied at a door outside in the street. And they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing? Untying the colt. And they said to them what Jesus had said. And they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus. And threw their cloaks on it. And he sat on them. So here's the scene. They're they're heading, drawing near to Jerusalem. Jesus tells the disciples, Hey, go and uh, get a colt. Is ready to ride it into town. And then the crowd is going to respond to Jesus. And their response is going to reveal to us what kind of king they were looking for. Let's look at verse 8. And they spread their cloaks on the road. They spread their cloaks on the road. And others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. Now in verse 8 there are uh, two incredibly revealing things about what the crowd was looking for. First, that they spread the cloaks on the road. This, this is a public demonstration of political allegiance. It's got its roots back in kings. But this is public demonstration of political allegiance. And then the second thing is that they were spreading leafy branches. That this was for the last 100, 150 years or so before Christ had come. This was how you celebrated a, a political triumph. So, you've got a political allegiance with celebrating political triumph, and this is um, a kind of ground zero of what they were looking for in Jesus. See, what they were looking for in Christ was not a suffering servant, they were looking for a political <coughs> hero. They were not looking for a suffering in Christ, they were looking for a political hero. And what they were looking for in Jesus would lead them to. Another and a different Jesus. Let's keep reading in verse 9. We're going to see it confirmed. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting. This is the crowd. And as they're shouting, they're about to quote Psalm 118. And in Psalm 118, they say, Hosanna. Hosanna. That this is, this Hosanna, it's a, it's a Greek transliteration, right? Not translation transliteration of a Hebrew word that means save us. And this is the crowd applying distinctly Old Testament language to Jesus. This is shared language. But out of verse 8, we know uh, probably not shared meaning. (laughs) That for them, save us likely meant something distinctly different. But we're going to see that confirmed as we keep reading. Let's keep reading. And those who went before, it's verse 9. And those who followed were shouting, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so, so far, here's what's happening. This is a direct quote out of Psalm 118. So Psalm 118 has Hosanna, uh, and then it has blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is a direct quote in verse 9, but in verse 10, things change. In verse 10, things change. Blessed is he. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our Father David. Hosanna in the highest. Now, on the surface, on the surface, this seems innocent. Right? On the surface, all they said is, Blessed is the coming kingdom of our Father David. Hosanna in the highest. But if we get underneath it, if if we get underneath what they're saying, it's actually not innocent at all. Psalm 128, and by that I mean Psalm 118, verse 26, says this. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Right? Now, that's, that's verse 9. Word for word, that's verse 9. And then Psalm 118 continues. We bless you. What's the next word? All of us together, family style. What's the next word? From. From, from the house of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. See, Psalm 118, blessing comes from the Lord. Mark 11. Mark 11, blessing comes from the crowd. And if I could summarize D.A. Carson. If you don't know who D.A. Carson is, brilliant, brilliant, brilliant theologian. The shift went from a blessing received in Psalm 118 to a blessing declared in Mark 11. This is a profound shift. Blessing received to blessing declared. And here's the point that they wanted a Savior they could approve of. This crowd they, they didn't want the Jesus that was coming. They wanted a Savior they could approve of. They wanted the Savior they wanted, not the Savior they needed. And this is the Old Testament story being played out over and over and over again. We want the King. We want. We want the King. We want. We want the King. We want. And this is not just an Old Testament story. This is our story. This is my story. This is your story. And if Mark were here, if Mark were in this room right now, he'd be pleading with us. He'd be standing, well, here. And he'd be pleading with us. Look for the Jesus you need, not the Jesus you want. Until the Jesus you need becomes the Jesus you want. I think this is what Mark would say to us. Look for the Jesus you need, not the Jesus you want until the Jesus you need becomes the Jesus you want. This would be plea, and this is why language and why meaning matters that shared language without shared meaning in the context of Christ leads us to a different Christ. Save us shared language without shared meaning leads to a different form of save us. It leads to a different Christ. And the thesis of the Gospel of Mark is a radical call to discipleship. It's a radical, distinct, countercultural call to discipleship. And if we pull this out into the broader context of the Gospel of Mark, I think this is what it would say it would say part of being a disciple is learning and growing into having a shared language with a shared meaning. That we would have shared language with shared meaning. When I was in Italy, uh, I had multiple conversations uh, with uh, Italians, I think, without them knowing that I don't know Italian. But I just using gestures and body language. And by the way, did you know die in Italian means go? The first time someone said to me, die, 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 I was really offended. And I was like, well, hey, man, like, you don't know me. Don't say die to me. But it just means go, it turns out. Um, so it was okay. We got a long time. But when I'm when I'm using their words without knowing their meaning, we have shared language without shared meaning. Right? Like I could regurgitate the sounds that they were making, making, making. I didn't have a shared meaning. So it's happening here. We're we're using Hosanna, right? Regurgitating shared language without shared meaning. And part of being a disciple, disciple of Christ, is having our language come in line. What the scriptures' meaning would be, share language with shared meaning, and so let's talk some language. What, what is a disciple? I'm going to give you a definition of what a disciple is that I got from Rankin Wilborn. If you're wondering, uh, do I podcast anyone? Uh, the answer is yes. I podcast Rankin Wilborn. He's a pastor in LA, incredible pastor. I love his preaching his teaching. Um, if you start podcasting him, you're probably going to want to move to LA. Know that you're not allowed to. If you're staying put where you are. Um, but Rankin Wilborn is just a wonderful teacher. Here's, here's a definition he gave of, of a disciple. A disciple is someone who, by grace and by choice, is learning from Jesus how to live. Someone who, by grace and by choice, is learning from Jesus how to live. And in our context, it's easy to overemphasize the choice and forget that all we do is by grace. It's easy to overemphasize choice, right? Our default position, saved by grace, sure, sanctified, by works. That's the default mode. But then we have to define grace, right? And grace is, is not just letting someone do whatever they want to do. Romans 1 would say that's wrath. All right, Romans 1 would say, hey, you let your life go and run wild and do whatever you want to do with your life. That's, that's, not, that's being handed over, Romans 1 would say, Grace is, at a gospel, theological level, a biblical level, grace is what God has done for us in Christ. All that we have in Christ is God's grace to us. And this is the foundation of gospel transparency. I feel like we've hit the, the, the transparency button a lot. But one of my fears is, is as we talk about it, and it is, a, it is a value, one of my fears is that transparency would just be without the gospel an excuse for self pity. Right, without the gospel, usually transparency just devolves into self pity. It's it's me giving myself to the problems of my life and trying to get you to buy into the problems of my life with me. Gospel transparency, another, another definition, is a disciple who, by grace, is choosing to pursue holiness and communion. Gospel transparency is a disciple who, by grace, is choosing to pursue holiness in community, and when gospel transparency is difficult. When deep, rich gospel transparency is difficult, usually it's because we bought in to what the crowd bought into. We want the Savior we want. We want the Jesus we want. We don't want the Jesus who gets into the deep, dark parts of our life. We want the Jesus that will stay on the peripheral. And that's not the God of the gospel. That's not the God of the scriptures. The Jesus that we have is a Jesus that enters in And so, to find the king that we need, let's jump back to verse 1. Jump back to verse 1. It says, Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and to Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples. Now, there's something in this verse, in this one verse right here, that just seems out of place. That just, if if you are... Uh, familiar with a Jewish context, but you're unfamiliar with Jesus, it's the first time it gets used in the Gospel of Mark, and it would have just leapt off the page at you. And it's the phrase at the Mount of Olives. At the Mount of Olives would have just sprung right off the page. And so it's natural to ask why it's there. It's there, it's there because there's a theological backstory that Mark wants you to know. There is a theological backstory to what's happening right here. That Mark wants you to know, and it reveals why Jesus came, who he is. And that backstory is grounded, is found, rooted, I think, this one in Zechariah fourteen. The words will be on the screen, but in Zechariah fourteen, verses one and two, you have the nations converging and collapsing on Jerusalem, going to battle with Jerusalem. And then in verse three, it says, Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations, as when he fights on the day of battle. On that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley. So the one half of the Mount of Olives shall move northward and the other half southward. And you shall flee to the valley of my mountains. For the valley of the mountains shall reach Azal. And you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come, and the holy ones with him. See, Zechariah's prophesying about this day. This day when the the Lord would come, when the wrath was going to come and land on Jerusalem, and the Lord would land on the Mount of Olives, and he'd split it into and he'd create a valley. And here's the thing about this valley. This valley was going to be the escape route. So you've got the nations converging on Jerusalem, the Lord lands and he splits the mount into, and that valley that was created would be the escape route. I think here's what Mark wants you to know. Mark wants you to know that Jesus is the true mount. Jesus is the one who would be split into, so that you would have an escape route from the wrath of God. But it wasn't wrath of the nations. It was the Father's wrath for the nations that converged on Christ. So the king that we need the king that we need is one who will stand in the gap for us. The one who would bear the judgment of the Father for you and for me so that we wouldn't have to fear the judgment of others. You see the king that we need invites us into deep Relationship because rejection by others doesn't sting when we've had. That's not true. That's an overstatement. It doesn't sting like it could or it would because we've had the acceptance of Christ. That's the Christ we need. That's the King that we need. Jesus was no political hero who would overthrow the nations. He was a humble King who would die at the hand of the nations for the nations. This is the King that we have a humble king. So the humility of our king. Let's keep reading. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you. And immediately as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And then they go and they get the colt and they bring it back. And there's two things that if we could bring it home and land the plane this way, there's two things that I think I want us to see in here. One is the humility of Christ. That this is the creator and sustainer of the world. Entering into the last week of his life, riding on a horse. Riding on a donkey. I don't know if it was a difference. Riding on a cult. This is the creator and sustainer of the world. Riding into the climax of his ministry on earth on a colt. And so when we look for a Jesus, when we look for a Jesus that will advance us socially. We're looking for a different Jesus. The Jesus we have is marked by humility. When we look for a Jesus who will exalt us socially, it's a different Jesus. The Jesus we have is the creator of the world who rode into town on a colt. That's the Christ that we have. And then the second thing I want you to see is that the disciples, they weren't doing something on their own. The disciples were, were joining Jesus. That Jesus was already at work. That he was already here. He was already doing something. And what the disciples were doing Joining Jesus in what Jesus was already doing. I think this is nothing else I want us to hear and to know as we think about who Sojourn is and who we're going to become. That we would be marked by the humility to know that what we're doing is joining what God is already doing. That God was at work in the heights and in Houston long before we got here. He will be at work in the heights and in Houston long after we're gone that we are entering in by God's grace with deep-rooted humility into what God is already doing in this city. And so next week, if I could leak this, I don't know if I should. Yeah. So we have a new website coming, and it's going gonna, it's gonna, it's gonna to take our, and on the website that I love, I can't wait to, to throw out this, this website that will become the United website for all of Sojourn, if you will. I love It's beautiful. I can't wait. Uh, but in there, the, our, our current mission statement has kind of become our vision statement, if you will. And our mission statement is going gonna, is gonna to begin with these words. It's going to be, I'm going to give you part A of the mission statement right now. And it, Notice this mission statement, that the mission of sojourn, the vision of sojourn, these aren't changing. There's some language that's going to get tweaked. In the beginning of our mission statement, part A is going to say, joining the Father, Son, and Spirit in that's what we are doing. We at Sojourn are joining in what the Father, Son, and Spirit have always done, are doing, and will continue to do. And prayers that we would know that. But our language matters. Our language is meaningful. That, that shared language with shared meaning creates disciples with a shared mission. Right? In verse 3, what did it say? The Lord has need of it. This is shared language, shared meaning, that creates a shared mission. And so our language at Sojourn, we love our language, but I want to cement some of this language, and I want us to keep it capped, rooted, grounded in the humility, to so know that this language is not Sojourn trying to do our own thing. This is how we think God has called us to play our part in this neighborhood and in this city. So here's some of our language for how we pursue this Redemption. Make disciples multiply parishes, plan churches, repeat. Make disciples multiply parishes, plan churches, repeat. Make disciples multiply parishes, plan churches, and repeat. That is what we do. So, how do we go about making disciples and sojourn? We want it to be pretty straightforward, pretty simple. Here's the process build relationships, Get, get to know people. Right? When you're at work, look up. Just just pick your head up and look at somebody and talk to them. When you're on your street, introduce yourself to your neighbor. Build relationships. And then invite them, expose them to community. Invite them them to dinner. Invite them to parish. Invite them to whatever it is that you do where you can have work friends, neighborhood friends, friends where you play, friends inside the body of Christ. Put them together. And then in word and deed, share the gospel. Build, expose, share. It's how we go about making disciples. Right? And then we gather these disciples into neighborhood parishes. And neighborhood parishes are, are places where we foster a gospel family, where we we're simply asking us to live out and asking you to live out one another's in the context of deep relationship, at least in the pursuit of deep relationship, that so we would live out one another's as a gospel family inside of our parishes. But it, it, um, it makes it okay to not know everyone at church. Right, when we gather together as a church family, it makes it okay to not know everyone because the people that you're living out one another's with exist. They exist within your neighborhood parish. It's a beautiful thing, it's a good thing. And it frees us, it frees me, it frees you of that need to know anyone and everyone inside. The churches. So we have these disciples who gather in parishes, that we multiply parishes in order to plant churches in a sojourn. Here's our, our game plan for planting churches. Start a parish, multiply it into a church. If I were to ask you, hey, how do we plant churches at sojourn? Your answer, start a parish, multiply it into a church. If I said, hey, how, how do we do it? Like, how? Simple, start a parish, multiply it into a church. It's our game plan. Our, it's the how of of the mission that God has called us to. It's how we are trying to play our part as a church family pursuing the redemption of the Heights and of Houston, and that our churches form what we call the Sojourn Collective, and the Sojourn Collective is simply a church of churches, a church of churches, neighborhood churches throughout our city, loving our city well and so why does language matter why I didn't we want to cement this language I want to remind us of this language because next, next week is Easter next, next week we, we, we have this cultural resurgence this cultural resurgence of, uh, of, of people who are going to show up inside church gatherings just like this one and the people that the Lord sends to us want to be able to say this is what we're inviting you into I want you to be able to say, this is what we're inviting you into because shared language with our shared meaning creates disciples with shared mission. Shared language, shared meaning creates disciples with shared mission. It's how we strive to pursue what it is that God has called us to here inside Houston, inside the Heights. And if if I could close out with this one thing, when we were in Italy, I've honestly never been in a context like this. So I've spent time in the Middle East, I've spent time in India. I've never been to Italy before. I've never been in a context where you pull up into a city of 300,000 people and say, hey, hey, show me, tell me about the evangelical church, and you're sitting in a living room and they say, You're looking at it. It was a first for me. And it did a couple of things. One, it created a, uh, just a deep gratefulness for our partnership with Acts 29 in Italy and a deep desire for that partnership to keep uh, continuing and just for it to become deeper and deeper and deeper in the years to come but it also did this thing to me when I came back here this holy anxiousness to see us be a people who speak the gospel to our neighbors right it's incredibly easy Especially now that we've hit a stage in our church, it's incredibly easy for us to just enjoy the community and the church family that we have and forget that there are men and women all around us, there are men and women in my apartment complex, men and women on your street, in your workplace, who do not believe in the gospel of Christ, who do not who are disciples of the crowd, if you who want the God that they want, but not the God of the Bible. And we exist here to live out in word and deed a proclamation of the God of the Gospel and the God of the Bible. Make disciples, multiply parishes, plant churches, and repeat. Let me pray.